Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Hey, Space Family. Welcome back to another episode. How are you doing tonight, Bree? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Brie. I had such a good week. I just feel so wide awake and just ready for the day. Ready to rock. Ready to rock in space. Well, I should be awake for this episode because we're diving into one of my favorite space agencies. NASA. Dun, dun, dun. I figured you'd be like, we're talking about my favorite thing in the whole wide world today. (laughs) We're talking about NASA, and we're going back into our secret space program series here. So we're going to be linking NASA to the secret space program along with a lot of other fun things along the way in this episode. We're going to get into the occult side of NASA. And if you're not familiar with NASA's acronym, it stands for National Aeronautics and Space Agency. So we've talked about this in our previous episodes, kind of a little bit of the background with JPL and and Jack Parsons, but the occult side, it is so important. It's really what shapes NASA today and the things that they still do to this day. Absolutely. I think it was basically founded on the occult. What the occult means, it's not something evil. I think when people think the word occult, they think of it as the same thing as a cult, and I'm sure it can be like a cult, but really the word occult is just supernatural, it's mystical, it's the esoteric. And NASA is filled with occult symbolism. And these connections are repeatable and they're consistent. And so it raises a lot of questions as to, hmm, so do some of these founders have a part in this to this day with the occult side? Is it carrying through over into the space agency? And it kind of seems like it is. You know, we started the background with JPL, with Jack Parsons, who we know was a mystic himself, and he was linked with Aleister Crowley. They participated in ceremonial magic. They summoned demons. There was accounts of him using this type of ceremonial magic when he was trying to get his rockets just to lift off. So it seemed like he was mixing that part of mysticism in with his science to help him. Maybe he saw that as a way for it to work. I mean, Jack Parsons was basically chosen by Aleister Crowley to carry on this organization. He took an oath. It was to, quote, guide humanity into an age of communion with the gods. Mm. And they engaged in all kind of practices that was to advance humanity by contact with higher intelligences. They claimed to have some type of ET contacts. And one of the most notable ones with Aleister Crowley is when he went to Cairo, Egypt, and that's when he channeled the Book of the Law from an ET named, I can't pronounce this, it's like Iwas, we'll just call him that. But that's how the whole Thelema religion, in a sense, began. Well, and you know what's funny about it is I think You know, towards the beginning of wanting to make this podcast, I had said to you that I really wanted to really do an episode about Aleister Crowley. And you were just like, no, doesn't really tie back into anything. But it's funny how much he seems to come up in the Secret Space Program series, you know? Yeah, he was just so heavily linked with Jack Parsons. He was probably his number one influencer. And it's interesting that in this book of the law, it talks about time in these eons, the eon of Isis, the eon of Osiris, and then the eon of Horus. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that those 
Egyptian gods were very prevalent just with Aleister Crowley and the whole Thelmic belief. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile in Germany, we talked about the Nazi occult, and they're dabbling in their own little otherworldly contacts with ETs, which essentially provided them a way to build technology and send them off planet. And then the United States military brings over Nazis for our secret space program and Operation Paperclip. And then this is really the birth of our United States space program. So the foundation of NASA was really conceived on a cult on both sides, on the American side and on the German side, the Nazi German side that we brought over. So this is all about the esoteric and the metaphysical knowledge and the practices. And really inside of NASA, there being the secret orders, the great white brotherhoods, the mystery schools, the Freemasons, it all goes back to esotericism. All of them have kind of a main goal, which is to basically seek enlightenment, but also to have communications and to become ones with the gods. Graham Hancock, he said a paragraph and I thought it was perfectly said. He said, few people are aware that NASA was formed as a national defense agency, adjunct empowered to keep information classified and secret from the public at large. Even fewer people are aware that the hard evidence that secret brotherhoods quietly dominate NASA with policies more aligned with ancient religious and occult mystery schools than the facade of rational science the government agency has successfully promoted to the world for almost 50 years. Ooh. So Mike Barra and Richard C. Hogan wrote a book called Dark Mission that kind of talks about the ins and outs of NASA and all these occult things and how they link to all these different things. And I'm going to read a quote from the book, and I'm kind of jumping in the middle of a quote. So he's talking in reference to the people inside of NASA. These literal fringe elements, then, are divided into three main groups inside the agency, as best as we can tell at present. For the purposes of this volume, we shall call them the magicians, the masons, and the Nazis, and deal with each group separately. Each sect is led by prominent individuals and supported by lesser-known players. Each has stamped their own agenda on our secret space program in indelible but traceable ways. And each, remarkably, is dominated by a secret or occult doctrine that is far more closely aligned with ancient religion and mysticism than it is with the rational science and cool empiricism these men promote to the general public as NASA's overriding mantra. Using commercially available celestial mechanics and astronomical software programs like the popular Redshift series, which uses the official JPL ephemeris as its database. We have been able to establish a pattern of behavior on NASA's part that points to something truly as inexplicable as it is exotic. A bizarre internal obsession by the agency with three gods and goddesses reaching across the millennia directly from ancient Egypt, Isis, Osiris, and Horus. It is these same three Egyptians god whose mythic story has been documented by many Egyptologists and authors, including Christopher Knight and Robert Lomas in the Hiram Key, that are also key to understanding the history of the Masonic Order. As we shall show, it is this same mythology that is also the heart of the V systems of the NASA's magicians and Nazis as well. This ritual Egyptian symbolism, secretly practiced by NASA throughout these past five decades, publicly shows up in its repeating, blatant choices of simple mission patch designs. For instance, if one looks at the official patch of the Apollo program, armed with our preceding heads up regarding the bizarre NASA focus on all things Egyptian, it becomes elemental to match the A for Apollo 
as an actual stand-in for Osar, the Egyptian designation for Osiris. This successful decoding of hidden Egyptians' meanings of the Apollo patch is redundantly confirmed because Asar and Osiris is none other than the familiar Greek constellation of Orion, which is, of course, the background stellar constellation on the patch itself. So these Egyptian gods and principles are taken seriously by the people that are influencing our space program. So it really would only make sense if we were to see that carry over. And the reoccurring symbolism for NASA are gods and goddesses of Egypt, Isis, Osiris, and Horus. And these gods and goddesses have star counterparts. Sirius is the celestial counterpart for the goddess Isis and Orion is the celestial counterpart for Osiris. Those two interchange quite frequently. Which is interesting because, you know, uh, we, we talked about in a recent episode, you know, all of the Egyptian buildings tend to have these alignments astronomically with the stars. So, of course, it only makes sense that even more of this Egypt, you know, ritual stuff always leads back to the stars because it's such a prevalent focus inside of Egyptian culture. Exactly. NASA is sending out a space probe and it's called OSIRIS-REx. Oh, that's, that's really a, interesting. That's a pretty sick name, right? I do like it. OSIRIS-REx was launched on the 8th of September in 2016 and it's going to visit the asteroid Bennu, which is another Egyptian name. Bennu just so happens to represent the phoenix. Bennu crosses Earth's orbit every six years, mm -hmm. but in 2135, the asteroid may enter a keyhole between the Earth and the moon, mm -hmm. where the gravitational pull of our planet will tweak Bennu's orbit, potentially pulling it on course for Earth later in the century. Oh, okay. So... <laughs> It's like a oh shit mission, I feel like. They're like, we're just going to send it over there, gather stuff, and then bring it back to Earth. 2023. Mm. But it sounds like it could be potentially a very sketchy situation. Do you think that secretly they could be taking a bomb to it? Oh. To like store on it for later, like just in case it gets too close eventually? But even if it does, all of that would still create, I mean, all of that would also get sucked into orbit and eventually also come crashing down Okay, so Earth. here's my question. How Do you know how big that asteroid is? Is it a pretty large mm, one? No. We could look it up. Because my question is, is if it's not that big and you blow it up into smaller pieces, you would want to do that because then even if it went into our atmosphere, the smaller pieces should be broken up by the time it like hits us, you know what I mean? But if it's like some huge giant asteroid that if you blew up, it would just like make it more devastating, then like I get that, but maybe that's what they're doing. I don't know. I feel like there's always secret missions like that that no one knows about. And they always have creepy names. It's interesting that all the names are also damn Egyptian. 492M in parentheses, it says 1,614 1, feet. It's like the size of a house. That's not that big. <laughs> That's not that big then. Uh, well, then let it hit the earth. Who knows? No, so I'm saying that you could just blow it up. If you just drop off a bomb on it for later use, you could break that into small enough pieces where it would disintegrate in our atmosphere before it hit us. What I don't understand is if we send these space probes out and they take pictures and shit and they send it back to us, why can't we just have live feed all the time? Or if they're always getting pictures back, why can't they show it? It would be so cool if you could turn on TV and then you're like, oh, Osiris Rex is getting to the Bennu. And then they show it like approaching Bennu. I mean, what if we started our own news network that was just space news 24 hours, like the Weather Channel? But we just took different feeds and like updated people like today on Space News One, we are going to be watching the asteroid Bennu get approached. 
You know what I mean? We could, but you know what? I think everything's just so covered up in space. That's probably why. I think I answered my own question. I was waiting for you to get around to that. <laughs> I was thinking, well, why would they do that? Then you'd see all this shit going on. Or what if they bring it over there and there's actual, like, people dancing on it? I don't know. Just Creatures like on could the be asteroid, on there. Like, hava, naiva, hava. <laughs> There seems to be these crucial moments, such as launches and landings, in the course of many missions, including the moon landings, that have these significant alignments with the constellation of Orion on the horizon. So it's interesting that you kind of brought up, you know, the moon landing and stuff, because I really want to dive into the occult symbolism that's kind of shrouded in the Apollo moon landing. Now, let me start off by saying we're going to be approaching this topic and you have to, for this all to make sense, believe that the moon landing was real. And I know that's asking a lot of some of our (laughs) listeners because you really truly believe that the moon landing didn't happen. And I'm with you guys on that one. But for the sake of the story and following the line of this kind of occultism and symbolism, we're going to just close our eyes and pretend that the moon landing actually happened. I think it did happen, but I think that what we saw back was fake. Bits and parts, I think it was filmed. But I think we did we did go. But think, what we got back was a film, so we didn't see what was really happening. I think that me and you are going to have to have a, an entire episode where we just talk about what we think actually happened at the moon landing. That was supposed to be our moon episode. That's not what that turned into, though. I know, but that's where I was going with it. And then you were like, factually, and I was like, that's not, we're we're talking aliens and moons. Not just the moons, moons. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, theoretically, people think we have more than one moon, so. Or more than one sun. I don't know, the Earth is flat. That's right. Okay, so there's this dude named Farouk El Baz, who was in charge of the precise details of the launch, the landing, and exactly where and when the astronauts would touch down on the moon. He has some serious Masonic ties, and his father was an expert in ancient Egyptian rituals, which is very, very interesting. So he was in charge of like the landing site, what time, all of the you know shenanigans that go along with that. Both the landing site and the precise timings of the mission are said to have been down to an apparently perfect alignment of Orion's belt with the moon's horizon on that specific date and time. And apparently Orion sat exactly 33 degrees above the horizon, so it's been said. I can't confirm that, but so it's been said. According to ancient Egyptian beliefs, ceremonies performed directly under Orion's belt produce a sacred alignment, which allows humans to communicate directly with Osiris. Such rituals were performed by those at high levels in secret societies of ancient Egypt to gain knowledge and wisdom, which is actually really, really interesting because it's said that apparently exactly 33 minutes After landing on the moon, Buzz Aldrin performed a ritual inside of the lunar module. And for everyone who we should remember, he is a 33rd Mason. He said it was a communion ceremony. It's like, what the fuck does that mean? He brought his little Masonic apron with him. No. You don't bring the... uh, He he brought the flag, too. He brought the flag, but he also had his apron. You don't wear the apron unless you're doing a ritual. You're doing the Hava Makina Hava. And going back to this number 33 here, the NASA launch pad in White Sands, New Mexico, that the Apollo 11 took off from, is launch pad number 33. And the shuttle landed on runway 33 after its trip to the moon. That's dope. 
You know, but Buzz Aldrin and Farouk Elbaz aren't the only people who were kind of deep in this kind of Masonic shit here. We also have Neil Armstrong, Jeff Edwin, who served with NASA as its administrator for the majority of the 1960s, and Kenneth S. Kleinecht was the overall manager of the Apollo program, and he was a high-ranking member of the Freemasons. So it seems that the Freemasons have a very serious obsession with the Egyptians, which in turn means that NASA has a serious infatuation with the Egyptians. It seems like everyone has a fatuation with the Egyptian gods. It's like everything they do is sacred geometry. Everything comes down to 33. Egyptian gods, they are putting this symbolism and these ritualistic behavior into all of their missions. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like it's a practice. I mean, I'd have to agree with you 100%. I'm very intrigued by this. I think what's hard about it, too, is, like, the more and more I dig into it, then, like, the deeper down the rabbit hole I get, and then I get into a million different other offshoots of, like, this occult symbolism when it comes to NASA and the Freemasons and stuff like that. And, like, it starts off with me looking at NASA and the occult side, but then, like, you throw in the Freemasons, and then you get, like, thrown into the 33rd parallel, and then, like, you know, all of a sudden you're down in Antarctica again, and it's like, wait, what the fuck? Oh, how the you know? fuck did I get over here? Yeah, it's like you go down the rabbit hole highway, and, like, you're getting off at all these exits that you didn't realize you were going to get off on, you know? But it also makes sense in Mike Barr's book, what he's saying. It's like these three major sectors, mm -hmm. right? The magicians, the Nazis, and the Freemasons. And they all have their own mission or belief. But to a certain point, they intertwine. Some of the symbolism intertwine. And so that's what we're seeing in our space program. Do you think that they're all combining their powers together, let's say, because that's the only way they're gonna achieve what it is they're trying to get done? I think that they know more than we will ever know about the entire mysticism realm in general. And I feel like, let's just say, if we were to believe the whole like ancient astronaut theory thing and say that these Egyptian gods, right, like Osiris and Isis and Horus, were actual aliens mm -hmm. and they're off planet, but yet they have some certain power or whatever where they can still exist. And let's say our space program, the occult side, is aware of that. Like, what if they're worshiping them? What if they think when they land on the moon, they're doing some ritual to pay, like, a respect or, like, an homage to them? Maybe they're trying to use that as a stargate also with the whole, like, 33 degrees and Orion and stuff. What if all of that is a ritual to praise these types of alien gods? It's interesting because I think that me and you both have said our our big number one thing that we dislike is linking aliens and gods together. We don't like that intersection of, of those two things. But I feel like, and even more and more today, like it's becoming more and more prevalent that like people are saying that aliens are going to become the new religion and that we have all the tall tale signs of you know, what a religion needs in order to be it. Ancient texts, ancient, you know, burial sites and, and ritual sites and things like that. Like, and all of a sudden we have all of these things and it's starting to shape up into being some type of religion, which is like the exact opposite of like what me and you or the people who are really seriously into this field all say don't want to happen. Yeah. It's also very confusing though, because then if you think about it in the sense of like, if you were to believe in the whole... Anunnaki situation. Those would be technically extraterrestrials 
and we would technically be their experiment, which would make them like our gods. Mm -hmm. So they would be an ET, and they would also be like a god to us. It's a thin line. Well, and what I don't really get or understand is, like, if aliens are real, then there's a bunch of different kinds of species of aliens out there. So why is it that we're picking random ones to say that are our gods? Because isn't at the end of the day the point of all of that being, like, there's more out there, so there isn't one central god or gods there's obviously a bunch of all these life forms out there, so why do we keep trying to praise them in some way or think of them as better or above us somehow? Unless those gods themselves were completely separate than the container that we're in. Maybe the container that we're in, we have all these other different extraterrestrials, all this stuff, but there is something outside of that, which in my opinion would make it an extraterrestrial. I mean, like, if it's not a human, I just see it as being something like, quote, alien. So if we're the snow globe on the Anunnaki's mantle in their home, someone had to build the house that the Anunnaki live in, is what you're saying. Yeah, there's got to be levels. See, and I think that that's, like, also just further proves to me that there's not necessarily one thing that's in charge of all of that or make something because mm-hmm. then once you get like how many levels do you go up then god and knows. like exactly literally, literally ooh. but like you think about it and then like what do you consider all these other things so like if there is a one central god that made aliens like just we're just very you know basic here just made the anunnaki and then the anunnaki made us okay so then are both gods technically like or do we worship them separately like or do when we find out that the anunnaki's have their own gods <laughs> do we then look at the anunnaki's as not as special as they were in the first place like ancient anymore yeah exactly so like if it's so common that all of these different alien you know societies out there can let's just say create experimental humans and stuff then how special is it really Exactly. I feel like there still has to be a level type of system. One thing I do like about the whole Egyptian gods, goddesses, is they are also just deities. Yeah. See, and I'm more inclined to believe in deities where people are in charge of, like, certain things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you have the god of horse poop and the god of, you know, green grass or whatever. Which, to the Egyptians, that's pretty much what the gods were. They were different deities. And even, like, with Horus, it's like there's so many different versions of Horus. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he's alive, he's dead, he's this, he's that. But it's also not necessarily that they're all apart from each other. It was because they believe in the different multifacets of life and the Mm -hmm. different interdimensionalism of life and the incarnation of it. So it's almost like the incarnation of this one deity is so many different other deities while being the same deity. Inception deity? Exactly. Oh, man. And I feel like everything recently has been leading me down to this. It's like a lot of synchronicity. I've been thinking about getting Billy Carson's book into the Emerald Tablets, which is all about Foth. And that's it's all about that Egyptian god in particular. Mm -hmm. And then I've been wanting to get in like the Hermetics Law and then came across this. And it's like, there's got to be something to this. It's interesting that you say that because I feel like my research is leading me in an incredibly different direction lately. And so it's funny because it's very opposite. You're thinking like very like starbound gods, bigger picture. And all of my research lately has been the world's going to end sometime soon. (laughs) (laughs) 
maybe I'm supposed to be researching that world ending so we can like figure out what to do here uh, and you're researching the higher above to get us out of here once the world ends because you know two sides of the coin exactly I like that and I'd like to also mention that I believe in the compartmentalization in NASA so hard that I think 99% of the people that are working in NASA have nothing to do with the occult side of NASA oh for sure I think that they really believe in their heart of hearts that they're doing goodwill and that they're out there really trying to plumage through space and they took on the American story of man against space. I don't really believe that they have the knowledge of everything that's really going on. Well, I think it's a lot like the government and the shadow government, right? I feel like even worse. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you have it's you have the, the government that's set up to make it look like they're the one doing all the maneuvers and things. And there's a lot of people with inside the political system who kind of have no idea about that stuff, you know, nor nor do they care to know about any of that kind of stuff. But then there's people who are very seriously who know about it, you know? There's key players. So I would assume that NASA kind of is the same way. You have this shadow management in charge of everything. There's, of course, everyday people there because that's how they get away with keeping all their secrets, you know? You have to, from the outside, maintain appearances. and But when you dig deep, you start to realize, oh, shit, you know? Yeah. So that's why I think a lot of them also don't even know about the secret space program. So I wouldn't I wouldn't see it as a bad thing either way. Of course, I'm always like, oh, fuck NASA, just because I know that they're like just for looks. But it doesn't really mean the people that are in NASA. I respect what they do. Mm -hmm. I really do respect that. And on that same token, I also don't necessarily see any of this occultism in NASA is wrong. I don't know why, but I just don't. I feel like they are on a strange path to enlightenment and they're doing their weird ways of getting there, however they believe it. And I don't really see it as anything more than that, except, except that whole Apollo 11 fire. Mm. There's conspiracy around that. There's the death. Uh-huh, mm -hmm. that it was actually a Masonic sacrifice. Ooh. to ensure success. Ooh, that makes so sense. So there's like weird things like that, but other than... Yeah, I'm going to have to say the whole NASA occult thing doesn't necessarily turn me off to NASA by any means. Only because I don't see the occult as a negative thing. There right. are negative facets to it. I think you kind of have to think about the cult as you would kind of sort of like a religion. There's going to be people who are extremists inside of it, who maybe do things on the negative side, just like how we have here with different religions. And there's going to be people who are in it for the more pure reasons and things like that and actually follow it. Do I believe that there's a possibility that some of the higher ups are doing negative things? For sure. Mm, yeah. But I don't think that the occult in NASA as a whole is negative. I think there are negative aspects to it, but I don't think all of it's negative. And I'm like, I'm down with it. Do your weird. If that's what gets us farther in space, yeah. or like if that's what the secret sauce is to like getting outside of our galaxy, then like, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think of the occult as very like magic-like. You know, I think about it, it in that same sense of like, when I hear magic, I think occult. When I hear occult, I think magic. So if we're using some type of magic, to make us go thousands of light years, that makes sense to me. Me too, I'm kind of down with it. I don't really hate against it. Apparently the Europeans, the European Space Agency is doing like the same kind of shit. That's a whole different rabbit hole though. It's a whole different rabbit hole. You know, I land, my, I land somehow I found myself there. I also found myself learning a bit more on like the Satanism and that being like just a bringer of light. And then the more I read, I was like, he doesn't sound too bad. Maybe he's just like... <laughs> <laughs> 
That's what I've been trying to say to you about no, Satanism for the longest time. I've been trying to say, like, people put Satanism in such a negative light. and they, they When they're doing their sacrifices, though, that's oh, not 100%. Cool. I, get, I get all that. But, like, the core of Satanism and, like, what it talks about is, like, not negative or bad really at all. Not that I'm saying that we should all be fucking Satanists or anything. I'm just saying that, like, the ideas of the Satanism religion isn't necessarily all this negative let's kill babies and sacrifice shit. A lot of it has to do with, like, you are you are God. You are the God. You are everything. Everything is within inside of you, and Satanism is only showing you the power that you have within inside of yourselves to accomplish and do things, which are in other religions. They just don't link it to Satan. Yeah. And just like we change our minds all the time, how come Satan couldn't change his mind and just be like, you know what? I'm not into the the, the the bad stuff anymore. Like, stop killing the cats, you guys. I'm over it. Well, think about it. He was an angel who fell from heaven, right? So he already changed his mind once and was like, I'm Oh, a, that's I'm a, a good d- point of view right there. I'm going to do negative. And then maybe he hung out here long enough and he was like, you know what? I like these fucking people. I'm into it. <laughs> but God was like, well, you're not coming back up here, buddy. And he was like, you know what, God? Fuck you. I'm going to do better down here. And instead of having all of these people worship you, I'm going to get them to worship themselves because they're more powerful than you'll ever be. Ooh. Bam. I mean, the end part went a little off for me, but as a whole, as a whole, I like it. All right. I do. I'm kind of into it. That's that's pretty funny. I'm just saying, if, if we can change our minds, why can't Satan change his? That should be a good hashtag. I know we need a hashtag. What could it be? Satan, the new metal bitch. Hashtag Satan changed my mind. I like that. You know how you've ever seen the meme? Where it's like the guy sitting at the, like the folding oh, table God. and it has on front and it, it'll be like, ice cream is stupid, change my mind. It's like that. Like, Satan's not bad, change my mind. That's hilarious. So you guys let us know what you guys think. Is it bad, good, do you care? I don't think the both of us care that it's very occultish. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me either, but it's definitely interesting to connect all those dots. And I think it's pretty undeniable as well. So we're going to give you guys two different conscious quotes of the day today. One from me and then one from Brie. A little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing or it can be a vibrant seed giving rise to verdant forests and awakening sleeping giants. This is a quote from Chan Thomas on the back of his book, The Adam and Eve Story. My conscious quote of the day is by Ellie Weisel. What does mysticism really mean? It means the way you attain knowledge. It's close to philosophy, except in philosophy, you go horizontally, while in mysticism, you go vertically. Two very different quotes. Yeah. But I think I'll lead back to the same shit at the end of the day. Sex magic. Fun fact here. We'll wrap up this episode with this fun fact. I might have said it on a different podcast, but you might have cut it out. Alistair Crowley took his assistant out into the desert and forced his assistant to fuck him in his ass. Like the assistant fucked Alistair Crowley in his asshole. The assistant didn't get raped other way around. And hopped him up on like acid and mushrooms and all sorts of drugs and psychedelics and forced him to do this for hours and hours and hours until he finally broke and went batshit fucking crazy, all in the name of doing a ritual. Which is why he was named the evilest man on earth. Uh, Actually, that is why in 1994, he was given the award for the largest gaping asshole. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, that just puts... That kind of mysticism in a whole dark light right there. But that's a great note to end off at. 
Thank you guys so much for listening tonight. If you want to hit us up on Instagram, you can find us at that one time I was abducted. Shoot us an email at that one time I was abducted at gmail.com. Of course, give us a call on our hotline, the abduction hotline at 408. 408- Three two zero four eight four one. And if you'd like to support us on the podcast, you can find us on Patreon slash that one time I was abducted by aliens. Um, and we just want to say fuck you, Mountain View, California, especially on this episode. And we also want to let you guys know to listen after this music is about to play because we have a fantastic story from one of our listeners, Tammy. And she's going to tell us a story about the Black Eyed Kids. You know, I was thinking you forgot to mention how when you were trying to research certain things, you came up to a block and you think you're being bugged. And I was going to tell you that it's probably from all those times you've been saying, fuck you, Mountain View, California. Possibly. I'm pretty sure that um, my computer's bugged because I was looking into some sketchy shit. And I just, I'll put it this way. I typed something into Google, and Google came back and told me zero, like nothing. There's no web pages that came back to the three simple words that I put in, which is a really hard thing to do inside Google, because it usually will give you 800 random websites that have like one of the words you typed in. To type in three very simple words that were a little bit controversial into Google and to come up with zero responses means that my computer is clearly bugged by the government. She's being blocked, but I think it's because you're always talking shit about Mountain View, so they're showing you, like, you want to keep talking shit, then you're not going to have anything to talk about. Really? Because it's very interesting because it would be very simple. All they would have to do is send me one email that says, I'm so-and-so from Mountain View, and then I would stop harping on Mountain View. I think, at this point, they like it. They like that I say fuck you, and they purposely don't email us because they want us to continue to shout them out. Mm. So fuck you, Mountain View. Goodbye. Have a good night. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'm Bree. And I'm Jamie. Tell us about that one time. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Bree. I love your show. So I was just um, getting myself up to date on your podcast. And then I heard the number and I thought, why am I listening to you? I should be talking to you. So anyways, I've like reached out to you on Instagram DM and you guys sent me a super awesome pin, which I found the envelope to the other day, but I can't find my pin somewhere. Um, so the thing I think would be my best story to call and tell you to start with, back in 2009, I was living in downtown Santa Ana. I'm in, I'm from California. That's from like Southern California and Orange County. And for any of you that don't know, um, if you're from Orange County or you're in Orange County, the ghetto of Orange County, it is where you're going to find more crime and more gangs and more things like that. But like a lot of those areas, you know, they were doing like the Renaissance and, you know, a lot of, a lot of things are being redone. So in 2009, um, actually, starting in 2005, I lived in downtown Santa Ana by myself in an apartment, female, 26 years old, by myself. So in 2009, I was probably 30, and I was living in, in downtown Santa Ana all by myself, and I had just gone through a gnarly breakup from somebody I had re-met up with at my 10-year reunion. So we'd been dating for a couple of years. We'd just broken up. I was super devastated. So I invited a couple of girlfriends over, and we went, like, bar hopping, and we had some drinks, okay? So we had some drinks. It's late at night, 
it's like two o'clock in the morning, you know, we're walking home when the bars are closed and they're kicking us out and it's downtown Santa Ana. We're just walking a couple blocks up to my house. So we're walking a couple blocks up to my house. And if I remember correctly, because I was 10 years ago, my one friend had her husband come and pick her up from the bar that we were at because she didn't think that she would be able to drive home. Myself and the other gal are walking to my apartment. And as we're walking to my apartment, this, like, 15-year-old girl, like a child, you know, is um, following us. And their head is down, so we don't really see them, you know, their face. But from what I remember, this person was wearing jeans and a hooded zip-up sweatshirt. And if I remember correctly, it was a red sweatshirt. And tennis shoes, jeans, like, kind of looked like what anybody else would be wearing, but then also kind of had that, like, 70s vibe. But that was the vibe in 2009, kind of, you know? So I'm, like, minding my own business. It's downtown Santa Ana. The girl I'm with is, like, you know, Tammy, we got to do something about this. This girl behind us, she's following us. And I'm like, no, 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 we're not talking to anybody at 2 o'clock in the morning in this neighborhood. We're going straight home. So the girl then catches up to us at a red light. And we see that the girl has two black eyes, black eyes. And I've never seen anything like this in my life. My friend has never seen anything like this in her life. My reaction after a few drinks was, I don't want to know what made her eyes turn black like that. We are getting the fuck out of here. Like, we have to get out of here. My friend is like, something's happened to this person that's made her eyes black. We need to help her. I don't know what's wrong with my friend, right? She's crazy. We're going back to my apartment. This person is behind us. And I'm telling my friend, like, no, there's no way this person is coming with us. Like, normally, back in that time, I would have let anybody into my house. I would have brought people home from a rave, and you could have spent the night at my house, and I'd never met you before. That was kind of my style. So I think my friend was expecting me to be that way. And for whatever reason, gut feeling, I kept telling my friend, no, this person can't come in the house. Like, she's a 15-year-old girl with two black eyes. She probably has a pimp around here, and he's going to kick our ass. Like, we got to keep her out of here. So my friend still is thinking that she needs our help because... The girl is also telling us she needs to come into my house to use the phone, okay? So my friend is like, oh, she needs to use her phone. We need to let her in. And I'm still, like, sticking to it. No, this person is not coming in my house, which was very not my style. But even after some drinks, I had this feeling that, like, bad idea to let this individual in my house. I told my friend she needed to take the cell phone and go outside and try to help her if she so desired to help this person. My friend goes out there with, um, I think, some juice boxes because she was only 15 years old and we couldn't, I wasn't going to give her beer, um, but I didn't have anything else in my fridge. So my friend goes out there with some juice boxes, a big beach towel to give her as a blanket, I'm guessing, and the phone. And she asks her for the phone number that she wants to call because she's asked to come into my house because she needed to use the phone. She starts telling my friend numbers. And none of the numbers are actually any phone numbers. Like, this person does not know how many digits are in a phone number. So there was no way that she actually needed to use the phone. Um, but she kept wanting to come into the house. And I finally had to tell my friend, like, I, I didn't want her in the house and that she needed to come in the house. So it was just one of those extremely, extremely weird situations. So my friend comes into the house. We make sure that we lock all the house up. 
we went to bed. I'm pretty certain if I still remember, I mean, it was 10 years ago, that the entity, the person knocked on my door a couple of times after we had told her that she needed to leave and that we were going to be going to bed. Um, but we didn't answer the door again. So we just encountered her on our walk home at two o'clock in the morning in downtown Santa Ana, followed us to the house, wanted to come in to use the phone. I wouldn't let her in. We tried a cell phone outside with her. I didn't. My friend did. I knew better. And um, she didn't know any phone numbers. So none of it was matching up. None of it was really aligning. Um, but the person definitely had two solid black eyes. And I had never heard of the black-eyed kids back then. And to be honest, I kind of had that experience and didn't really think about it. And then I'm going to say in 2016, 2015, 2016, I was introduced to the Art Bell Show. And uh, listening to Art Bell is where I learned about the Black Eyed Kids. And that was when it was like a light bulb went off in my head that that sounded like the experience that I had in 2009 with the people who wanted to come into the house and wanted to use the phone. But when given a phone outside the house, didn't actually know any phone numbers. So very, very interesting and a wild experience. So I just wanted to call you and I just want to say, fuck you, Mountain Bell, California. Bye.